Good morning. Good morning to you here physically and those of you who are there virtually. Uh, what a blessing it is to hear the scriptures read, to speak those scriptures ourselves, uh, to pray together, to hear the music of worship, and now all of us to read and hear and sit under the authority of God's Word. We're continuing our journey uh, through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and our scripture text for today is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. I invite you to turn there and stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Please be seated. Our son John's wife, Jeannie, is adopted, along with one of her brothers. Uh, and when they were babies, uh, after their parents had tried unsuccessfully to have biological children, their parents, as it sometimes goes, were mysteriously able to have two biological children. Uh, so two adopted and two biological. Uh, and in such situations, it's not uncommon to hear some people make this comment, oh, you have two adopted children and two of your own, to which Jeannie's parents would quickly and somewhat sternly reply, no, we have four children of our own. Because for Dwayne and Connie Shambach, our daughter-in-law Jeannie and her brother are not partly theirs or second best theirs, they are fully completely all in theirs. And they have loved them with the same depth of affection and care and delight as they have for their biological children. But adoption is not just our daughter-in-law story. It's your story. And it's my story. Because it's one of the principal acts of God's grace in the gospel. And it is fundamental to our understanding of who we are and what God has done for us. First, I just want to briefly recap uh, where we have come so far in the letter of Galatians. Remember, the main point so far is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Early on, we heard Paul's personal story, how he received his understanding of the gospel directly from God, so that the gospel he preached and his preaching of it were completely trustworthy and were fully affirmed by the other apostles. We've heard his deep concern about the Galatian Christians falling back into legalism, that somehow their right standing before God would be based on their performance, either their performance of good deeds or their performance of following certain Jewish rules and practices. 
we heard Paul confront Peter. Got in his face about his hypocrisy. Because Peter was believing the gospel, but he was not walking in step with the gospel. He had pulled back from fellowship with the uncircumcised Galatian Christians. And we heard Paul get very explicit about justification by faith alone. And our union with Christ in his death and in his life. Remember that glorious verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then in Galatians 3, we heard Paul cover 2,000 years of Old Testament history. From Abraham all the way to the birth of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. All of that history, including the law of Moses, finding its ultimate purpose and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So that the blessing of Abraham and the gift of the Holy Spirit might come also to the Gentiles. And last week, we heard Paul explain the purpose of the law, a temporary garden, guardian and trainer until Christ came. And today, we'll hear a bit more about that, about how the law as a guardian gives way to Jesus throughout the first three chapters of Galatians. Paul's primary purpose has been to unfold that great doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The doctrine on which Martin Luther said the church stands or falls, and which John Calvin called the hinge on which everything turns. And it's especially timely to remember that this week as we've celebrated Reformation Day. And of course, we cannot overemphasize the importance of the doctrine of justification. But justification is not the end of the gospel. In fact, it may not be even the greatest blessing of the gospel. Listen to J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Packer says, this may raise some eyebrows. For justification is the gift of God on which, since Luther, evangelicals have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Justification is indeed the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. That is not in question. Justification meets our primary need. By nature, we stand under God's judgment and we are condemned in our sin. More than anything else in the world, we need the forgiveness of our sins and a restored relationship with God, which is what the gospel offers. But, Packer continues, this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the rich relationship with God that it offers. Now, the point, of course, is not to argue about which of God's gracious acts is better or more important. But the point is to see with Paul in our passage today that adoption is glorious and perhaps not as fully appreciated as justification, especially perhaps in our Reformed communities. In justification, we are declared right by God the judge. 
In adoption, we are loved by God as our Father. In justification, the picture is legal. We stand before a judge who makes a pronouncement that we are now in the position of forgiven sinners. But in adoption, the judge not only declares us not guilty, but he gets down off the bench. He comes down to us. He puts his arms around us and he says, you are coming home with me. In adoption, we experience all the privileges of being beloved sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father. Again from Packer, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And so Packer concludes, the richest answer I know to the question, what is a Christian, is that a Christian is one who has God as his or her father. Let's go to our text. Uh, Remember briefly from chapter 3, as we heard from Phil Riken last week, Paul introduces this idea of the law as a guardian or manager or even jailkeeper until Christ came. And in verse the first three verses of chapter 4, Paul will unpack this further. He begins with the, those two little words, I mean. In other words, further explanation is coming. And surely Paul's readers would have understand, understood this concept. Because in almost every first century culture, a child during his early years, even though he is a legal heir, would be under orders from guardians and managers, including even a trusted slave who would teach and train and restrain and discipline and exercise virtually complete control over the child's life. Um, Recently, Kathleen and I have been watching the excellent little video series, Victoria, about the first 15 years or so of Queen Victoria's amazing 63-year reign in Great Britain. Victoria had nine children with Prince Albert, and she found motherhood distasteful. And so for all the children, there were nursemaids and nannies and managers and teachers who did virtually all the child-rearing and teaching and disciplining. But even for Victoria's children, that stage of life was temporary. When childhood was passed, the son or daughter would come into adulthood and receive the appropriate inheritance. And positions would be reversed. The slave would now be under the authority of the heir. Paul uses this analogy to show our situation under the law. Before Christ came, under the law, we would have been like children under a guardian or students under a schoolmaster or slaves under a master or even prisoners under a jailkeeper. Now in in verse 3, Paul adds an interesting detail. He says, during this stage, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The Greek word there is stoicheia, and it can mean several things. It can mean pagan religion and philosophy. That seems to be how Paul uses it in the book of Colossians. But its basic meaning is that it's the fundamental building blocks of anything, like the letters of the alphabet are the building blocks of language, or as in Greco-Roman times, air, earth, Fire and water were the fundamental elements out of which everything else was made. So, being under the law was like when we were children, as verse 3 says, 
like in kindergarten or elementary school where you learn the alphabet and you memorize the multiplication tables and you have to get it right or you go back and do it until you do. Paul's point is the, the law of Moses was like that. It provided the basic principles of our understanding of God's holiness and righteousness according to which human beings are held accountable and judged. And that's a good thing. That is a good God-ordained purpose of the law, as we saw last week, to show us our sin, to show us that with respect to God's law, we can never get it right, and therefore to drive us to a Savior. But the child graduates from kindergarten, or should. And at a certain age and stage, the child officially passes from childhood to adulthood, acquiring a grown-up understanding, receiving the full rights of sonship, including the inheritance of all that the father possesses. Analogously, for sinners under the law, at a certain point, by God's redeeming grace, the sinner's status would change. Passing from the guardianship of the law and the requirement to get it right, to becoming fully entitled sons with all the rights and privileges as heirs of God's promises. In verses 4 and 5, Paul tells us when that happened. It was when the fullness of time had come, when God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Now, just a quick theological side note. If someone asks you who Jesus is, and what he did, you would be doing okay if you just quote Galatians 4, 4, and 5. That is glorious Christology in a two-verse nutshell. First, it was the fullness of time, what we might call the kairos moment of all history. Verse 2 calls it the date set by his father. It was the fullness of time biblically and theologically. All the Bible's story from creation to Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus Christ, over 300 prophecies given and fulfilled, and now here in this moment of the coming of Christ is the crux of God's redemptive plan on the date set by the Father before the creation of the world. But we could also say that it was the fullness of time culturally and politically, the Pax Romana, the universality of the Greek language would enable the spread of the gospel across vast regions of the world. So this was the right time. But it was also the right person. Such a transition from slaves to sons and from children to heirs required someone with the right qualifications. Verse 4, God's own son, fully divine, eternally existing, without any sin. Only one who is truly God could bear the full wrath of God for sin and turn slaves into sons. But born of woman, fully human, only a true flesh and blood human being could be a true substitute for sinful human beings. But also born under the law. Like all of us, he was obligated to fulfill all the demands of the law. But unlike all of us, he did it perfectly, the only truly righteous one. And thus, he was the right person, uniquely qualified. But for what? Verse 5, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. That word redeem, as you know, means to release a slave from his owner by paying the full price for the slave. So Jesus, God's own son, born of woman, born under the law, paid the full price. Death. The wages of sin is death. That was the full price. In order to release and set us free from our bondage and condemnation under the law. On the cross, once for all, Jesus paid it all. But I hope you heard the dual blessing. Justification and adoption. Yes, God sent Jesus to redeem those under the law so that they would be no longer like children under guardians or slaves under jail keepers. But he did it, if you saw the language, so that, for the purpose that we might be adopted as God's sons and daughters. Redemption for the purpose of adoption. What Packer boldly calls the even greater blessing. Our adoption was certainly not because we were particularly attractive to God. In fact, if we really understand the ugliness of sin, we must realize that we would be the least desirable for adoption. Evil, nasty, stubborn haters of God and all things good. Uh, the writer Russell Moore writes about considering adopting a 12-year-old child and then learning that the child sets things on fire skins animals alive, acts out sexually, and then you find out his parents and grandparents have histories of violence as well. Would you want that child? Moore says, you know, that child is you. That child is me. The most undesirable adoption candidates imaginable. And that's the wonder of the gospel and God's adoption of us as his sons and daughters. Our good friends, Daryl and Kathy Heald in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, have adopted several special needs children, children with serious, lifelong physical challenges, not the ones that most people want. Or I encourage you to go to YouTube. I don't do that very often. But I encourage you to go to YouTube and search for the video called I Like Adoption about the Dennehy family. Watch that video and consider such stories and then multiply by at least a million, and you will begin to get just a glimpse of what our adoption by God our Father means. Yes, Christian, your righteous status with God the judge was settled at the moment when you were declared righteous through faith in Christ, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that is not the end of your gospel story. God redeemed you from bondage and condemnation under the law so that you would have a new life, a living relationship with God as your Father, in which He communes with you and sustains you every day with love and affection and fatherly devotion. And just as our justification does not depend on our works, so our ongoing belonging to God's family does not depend on our works, as if somehow you have to keep earning the right to stay in the family. No, as someone has put it, the way in is also the way on. What a message that would have been for the Gentile Galatians to hear. 
who were being pressed by the Judaizers to believe that Jews were the real sons and daughters of God and that they were maybe either second-class citizens or, as Phil Riken put it last week, distant cousins, those who had to somehow earn the right to be part of the family. No, all those who are justified through faith alone, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, remember Galatians 3.28, all are one in Christ. They all find together their fundamental family identity in Christ, adopted sons and daughters, heirs of all the promises to Abraham. But then in verses 6 and 7, we see that adoption brings yet more blessing. Well, first, did you notice the double sending in verses 4 and 6? Verse 4, God sent forth his son. And then verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son. You know, if verses 4 and, four and 5 give us Christology in a nutshell, verses 4 and 6 give us the Trinity in a nutshell. A beautiful summary. God sent his son who secured for us our righteous status, redemption and justification, the objective status of our right standing before our holy God. And God sent the Spirit of His Son, who secures for us the actual living reality of our sonship, the subjective experience in our hearts and lives of the fatherly love of God. So then, what is the yet more blessing of our adoption in these verses? Two things. Verse 6, personal intimacy with God. The Spirit of Christ in us cries out, Abba, Father, the loving, caring, personal fatherhood of God and our relationship with Him. Now, before going further in talking about the fatherhood of God, it is good to mention at least briefly that the concept of the fatherhood of God can hit different people differently based on their respective experiences with their earthly fathers. I'm drawing largely on something my son John has articulated about this. Everyone in the world, I believe, has a built-in desire for a good relationship with a father. So how can you, whatever your experience with your earthly father, allow that experience to illuminate God's perfect fatherhood over you in Christ? If you had a great godly earthly father, then you should be saying, how much more wonderful and perfect is my heavenly father. But if you had a father who let you down in significant ways, who wounded you in significant ways, by God's grace, may you be able to say, even the failings of my earthly father point to my heavenly father, who will never fail me. He will fulfill everything that my earthly father did not. And to all of you who are or will be fathers, take note. While we may fail, actually certainly will fail our children in significant ways, we are nevertheless the first glimpse, maybe the first hint they will get of what a father is like. Some of the earliest indicators our children get about the fatherhood of God come from us. What a challenge and what an opportunity to love and teach and lead our children in ways that help them to embrace and trust and enjoy God as their heavenly father. Now that word, Abba, is often misunderstood. 
it is sometimes over-sentimentalized as a kind of baby talk. Like in English, we say, dada. That's not how the scriptures use this address for God. It expresses a deeply personal and mature relationship of deep, profound passion and affection and personal connection and confident dependence. It is Jesus in the garden crying out to his Father, Mark 14, 36. It is what the Spirit of Christ in us enables us to cry out, according to Paul here in Galatians 4 and also in Romans 8. And you know, it is such a distinctive name for God from Jesus and Paul that it has passed directly into almost every language. In French, it's Abba. In Swahili, it's Abba. In Spanish, it's Abba. In Mandarin, it's Abba. In Indonesian, it's Abba. Although I should add that among the majority Muslims in Indonesia, according to Islam, such an intimate personal relationship with God or the claim of such is actually considered blasphemy. But for Christians, what a gift. It is a child's cry, yes, when she is afraid. But it is what we, cray, what we cry out when we hear the news we most feared. When we get the medical diagnosis we dreaded. When we experience the circumstances that we never imagined could happen. You fall on your knees and you cry, Abba, Father. But it must also be our passionate cry of thanksgiving and joy when we realize and experience the daily intimate presence and blessings of our heavenly Abba Father who continues to shower his eternal love and care on, on us, his adopted sons and daughters. So intimacy with God, what a blessing in our adoption. But second, verse 7, not only intimacy with our Abba Father God, but also a glorious inheritance. Because we are sons and daughters, we are therefore co-heirs with Jesus of all that God the Father promises and gives to God the Son. Now, of course, we are not equal in nature to Christ. He is God himself, and we are not. But Scripture is clear. Everything that belongs to Christ in his inheritance from the Father now belongs to us. Listen to John Calvin. With what confidence would anyone address God as Father? Who would break forth into such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of a son of God unless we had been adopted as children of grace in Christ? He, while he is the true son, has of himself been given to us as a brother that what he has of his own by nature, his inheritance of all the promises of God, may become ours by benefit of adoption if we only embrace this great blessing with sure faith. How wonderful that Kathleen and I can see the grace of adoption in the life of our daughter-in-law, Jeannie. Jeannie knows firsthand, and we have been blessed to witness up close what it means and looks like and feels like to have parents who have set their love on her as their very own child. How much more should we realize the blessing of our adoption by our Father God, ugly and undesirable as we were? God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And God sent forth the Spirit of His Son in us to cry out, Abba, Father, personal intimacy with God our Father, and an eternal, unshakable inheritance. What a magnificent string of blessings is ours by the goodness and grace of the gospel. Well, I just want to close by asking a few questions for reflection. Do you understand? Do you truly grasp what a blessing it is to have God as your father through your adoption as his son or daughter? Remember the words of John from 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And we heard so beautifully sung earlier how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. So as you look into your own heart, Do you see indications that you truly know God as your heavenly Father, a personal, intimate relationship with God? Or are there hints and signs that you may be behaving more like a slave or even an enemy than a son or daughter? What attitudes, behaviors, sins, or spiritual habits prevent you from knowing and addressing God intimately? as Abba, Father. And if that's the case, how can you more fully think, act, and trust as a truly adopted child of God? Finally, how should the doctrine of adoption affect how we view others in the church? You see, apart from Christ, we're all in the same boat. Unlovely, unwanted, enemies of God. And yet, by grace through faith, we are all adopted sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in the family of God, fellow heirs with Jesus of all God's promises. What unity in the family of God we can, must experience in our shared adoption under the fatherhood of God. Thanks be to our gracious God, our Abba Father, through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Brother. Let's pray. Father, what a wonder it is that you sent the Son to redeem us, to redeem those of us under the law so that we would receive adoption and that you sent the Spirit into our hearts to ensure, to seal the relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. What a gift it is. Lord, would you give us great gratitude for such a gift, for such an act of grace? Would you show us those areas of our life where because of sin or stubbornness or even unbelief, we are not enjoying the wonder of that blessing? Lord, would you enable us by the Spirit in us to cry out in times of sorrow and suffering and also in times of blessing and joy, Abba Father, loving Heavenly Father. What a gift. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.